You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Today we are taking another step in um, our series in the Psalms this summer. And let me just remind you of what the Psalms are for, um, why God has given us the Psalms. The, The Psalms are given to us so we can give them back to God in prayer. This is, this is the reason that the, the Lord has given us 150 psalms so that we can receive them from him and then give them back to him in prayer. I love how Eugene Peterson talks about the psalms as a training tool to teach God's people how to pray. Uh, let me just refresh you with this uh, quote from Eugene Peterson that I read a couple of weeks ago. He says it this way. He says, the practice of Christians in praying the psalms is straightforward. Simply pray through the Psalms, Psalm by Psalm on a regular basis. That's it. Open your Bibles to the book of Psalms and pray them sequentially, regularly, faithfully across a lifetime. This is how most Christians for most of the Christian centuries have matured in prayer. Nothing fancy, just do it. So I just want to just encourage us all to receive that encouragement from Eugene Peterson and really from the scriptures, uh, to receive the Psalms like this. What a great habit it would be if every day of our life we would just open up the scriptures and find a Psalm and read that Psalm and then ponder that Psalm and then turn that Psalm back to God, give that Psalm back to God in prayer. This is how most Christians throughout most of the Christian centuries have learned how to pray in Stonegate. This is the way that we can learn how to pray, develop a deeper, more robust, more vital life of prayer. So today I want to spend our time in Psalm 139, Psalm 139. And I just want to encourage you to have your Bible out and open to Psalm 139. It would be helpful for you to be able to follow along, Psalm 139. This particular psalm contains one of the boldest prayers in the entire Bible. It's one of the boldest prayers. It's one of those prayers that takes as much courage, as much faith to pray as any prayer that you will find in the Bible. And you find it in the last two verses of Psalm 139. And just listen to these two verses. These are two verses prayed back to God, given back to God in prayer. Uh, The psalmist David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, this text is introducing us to what we might call proactive repentance. And I want to give a quick shout out to Kelly Needham. Uh, She came and did a teaching for our staff several months ago and introduced us to this idea of proactive repentance. And it was just so helpful for us as a staff that I wanted to introduce it to you, this idea of proactive repentance. And that's really where this text is going to take us. It's going to take us down into this journey of proactive repentance. But before we get there, before we can take that journey in this text, I want to take one step back and do a little bit of work I'm on that word repentance. I just want us to see for a few few minutes um, this huge biblical theme of repentance as it's played out over the scriptures. So uh, let me just highlight uh, this morning three things about this word repentance. Three things about repentance. Number one, repentance in the Bible is continual. Repentance is continual. 
It's an ongoing habit in the Christian life. Now, uh, let's take a step back and just consider repentance broadly in the Bible. Um, It is used, it's a huge theme in the scriptures. If you just read the Old Testament, here's what you're going to find. That the word translated in the Hebrew, translated repentance, is going to be used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. So this is not a small theme. This is a huge theme. And you find it littered throughout the New Testament as well. The New Testament opens with the words of John the Baptist, and he's calling people to repent. If you remember in the first chapter of Mark, there is a, essentially a one-sentence summary of Jesus' first sermon. And here's the one-sentence summary of that sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's the summary. Jesus is preaching this. Repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Do you remember the final words of Jesus in the book of Luke? Uh, He looks at his disciples and says, Repentance and the forgiveness of sin should be preached to all nations. Or how about the early church? Uh, Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to the crowd in Jerusalem, and they are just cut to the heart. And they look back at Peter and say, Peter, what should we do? And he looks back and says, here's what you should do. You should repent and be baptized. Repentance is no side issue in the Christian life. Repentance is a central issue in the Christian life. So let's just take that phrase, repentance is continual. Uh, First, repentance. What does that word mean, repentance? When you cut it to the core, repentance is turning from sin and turning to the Savior, Jesus. That's repentance. It's turning from sin to the Savior. It's turning from what is killing us, sin, to the one who is giving life to us, Jesus. It's turning from the one taking life, that's sin, and turning to the one who is saving us, that's Jesus. This is what repentance is. I love how J.I. Packer says it. He says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. That's repentance. Uh, Repentance is called a gift in the Bible. Uh, It's a gift where God makes us more aware of our sin, more aware of his majestic holiness, more aware of his all-satisfying grace. And when God gifts us that awareness, repentance erupts in us. We turn from our sin to our Savior, to Jesus. So that's repentance. Repentance is continual, is continual. Repentance is what starts the Christian life. If you're a Christian, you are a Christian because at some point the Lord has been at work in you and you have repented of your sin. Repentance is the prerequisite for our sin being blotted out, for us to come into a restored, reconciled relationship with God. But it's that same repentance that starts the Christian life that same repentance stays in the Christian life. It doesn't just start it, it stays in the Christian life. If you're a Christian, it means that you have repented, past tense, and that you are repenting, present tense. That's what a Christian is. This is the the sort of normal habit of a Christian. Uh, Roughly 500 years ago, Martin Luther, he nailed uh, these 95 theses uh, to the church door um, in Wittenberg, and it sparked the Protestant Reformation. And here was the first of the 95 statements that he nailed to the door there in Wittenberg. The first of those 95 statements said this. He said, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, 
He meant that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. That the whole of your life, it's not just the start of the Christian life, it stays in the Christian life. He's saying that repentance is not a one-time event in your life or in my life, it's a lifelong, ongoing event in our life. It's not a one-time-in-the-past issue. No, we are to be lifelong repenters. That's what he's saying. Repentance is continual. It starts the Christian life and stays in the Christian life. Um, I love how Tim Keller, how he says it. He says, I can say to you without fear of preacherly hyperbole, and preachers are prone to hyperbole, right? He can say, I, I, I can say to you without fear of preacherly hyperbole that Jesus says repentance is the gateway to everything. Yes to that. It, it starts the Christian life and it stays in the Christian life. As long as sin remains in us, and sin is going to remain in us until Jesus comes back, amen? As long as sin remains in us, repentance will be necessary for us. So as long as, as there is remaining sin, we will always be in need of repentance. Repentance will be an ongoing, lifelong habit. So let me maybe just apply it this way. If somebody were to come to you and say, uh, or ask you the question, how do you measure spiritual progress? How do you measure spiritual maturity? If you're just looking at your own life, trying to get a sense of, am I growing and progressing in my life with God, what would you look to? And I think a lot of people look to the wrong thing. I think a lot of people look at their life and they ask this question, well, what is the distance between me and my last sin? That's going to tell me how much I've progressed in my Christian life. And the problem with that is it's just a really bad measurement. Because the truth is, there's never much distance between us and our last sin. In your life, there's not a lot of distance. In my life, there's not a lot of distance. There's never a lot of distance between us and our last sin. A much better way to measure your growth in godliness is not to ask, how far is the distance between me and my last sin, but to ask this question. What is the distance between me right now and my last moment of repentance? How much time has there been between those two things? That is showing you Christian maturity. Under the question of Christian maturity is not, how long has it been since I've sinned? That's never been very long. The question under Christian maturity is, how long has it been since I've repented? So just take a look at your life. Is repentance an ongoing, continual thing? Is it habitual? Is it, has it formed into just the posture by which you live your life? That's what repentance should be in our life. It's continual. It ought to stay with us every moment of every day. As long as sin remains in us, repentance will be necessary for us. Repentance is continual. Here's the second thing I want to highlight about repentance. Repentance can be reactive. Repentance can be reactive. So repentance is continual, and repentance can be reactive. This is one path we might, and it's, by the way, it's, it's a more painful path, but it's one path that we might take toward repentance. Reactive repentance occurs when our sin has become so entrenched and pronounced that it's no longer avoidable. It, it, we, just, we, we can't any longer just sort of coexist with it. it it's become so entrenched and so, it's, it's blossomed and grown to such a degree in our life that it's no longer avoidable. 
And because we've resisted over and over as, as that sin has entrenched itself and grown in our life, because we've resisted over and over again the tender love of God, uh, the whispers of the Lord as he has been addressing it in our hearts, because we've resisted that voice so long, the tough love of God comes crashing through the front door of our lives, in a lot of ways forcing us to address that sin. So maybe the, the best illustration of this in the Bible comes from the life of David, ironically the guy who wrote Psalm 139. Uh, right, so th this is a sort of episode in his life comes in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And that chapter contains the sad story of David walking out on a roof one day and just taking a good look around and he sees Bathsheba, a, a married woman. And David begins to ask around about Bathsheba and finds that um, she is Uriah's wife, one of his soldiers' wives. Uh, but rather than receiving that news, uh, David, with a calloused, harsh, just, uh, calloused uh, heart, just sort of pushes right past that piece of news. And he takes Bathsheba, and he breaks the seventh commandment, among with several other commandments, all at the same time, right? And, uh, and later he gets news that Bathsheba, Uriah's uh, wife, is pregnant. And now to solve the new problem that just arrived in David's life, David tells his commander to put Uriah on the front line and then retreat from Uriah to make sure he dies on the front line. And then you get to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, and that chapter ends with David resisting God. There is no mention of sorrow about his sin. There's no mention of him grieving his sin. There is no mention of him even acknowledging his sin. But that chapter ends with God saying something. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, the scriptures say, but this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So then in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Lord sends Nathan, a prophet, to visit David. And Nathan tells David a story about two men. And you might remember this story. One of the men was rich and one of the men were poor. The, the rich man had flocks and herds. I mean, he just had like limitless animals, uh, lambs and, and sheep. Uh, but the poor man had one little lamb and that one little lamb was precious to the poor man. I mean, it, it was like a pet. It ate off their table. It slept with them at night. I mean, this, this little lamb was precious to this poor man. But then the rich man had a friend visit town. And rather than killing one of his own lambs to feed dinner to his friend, he stole the, the poor man's precious little lamb and, and slaughtered it to provide dinner for his friend. And then when David hears the story, he's enraged. He just loses it. He flies off the handle. And he says, that rich man, that, that man deserves to die. That, that's what should happen to him. And Nathan looks back at David and says, David, you are that man. You are the rich man. That, that, that's who you are, David. And in that moment, David's world came crashing down. And that's a view of reactive, it's an illustration, an example of reactive repentance. That when we refuse Jesus long enough, he'll wound us with his tough love. And that wounding is not to spite us, it's to save us. That wounding is not because God dislikes us. That wounding is because God loves us. 
That when we refuse his tender love, when we ignore his gentle whisper, when we resist him, refusing to respond to his wooing, his gentle love, he'll bust through the front door of our lives, exposing our sin for the sake of our rescue. That's reactive repentance. Now, let me just say two things about reactive repentance. Um, first thing is reactive repentance, this just illustration in the life of David here, it shows us the importance of community. It shows us that, that, that we all need community. Uh, the reason uh, reactive repentance is the result of us resisting the Lord. And we're all prone to that. You're prone to resisting. I'm prone to resisting the gentle love of God, the, the wooing whispers of God. We are all prone to resisting those things. And when we resist the, the gentle love of God, you know what we all need in our life? A Nathan. We all need people in our life who love Jesus enough and love us enough to faithfully wound us to help us see clearly again. You need that, I need that. Just ask yourself the question right now, do I have Nathans in my life, men and women willing to wound me if I need it? Do I have that sort of rich, deep community in my life, people who love me like that? Do I have a Nathan in my life? But the second thing this episode shows us, reactive repentance shows us, is that yes, repentance can be reactive, but it doesn't have to be reactive. Reactive repentance is the hard way. It's, it's the more painful way. God can and will use a Nathan in our life if he has to, but he'd prefer not to. Right? Reactive repentance, it, it, it can be the option, but it doesn't have to be the option because repentance should be, and this is the third point, repentance should be proactive. It can be reactive, but it should be proactive. Jesus will wound us with his tough love, but he would rather woo us with his tender love. He would much rather operate like that in your life and in my life. It gives God no pleasure to have to wound us. He would rather gently pursue us with his tender love and us be responsive to that. He would rather us come to him with an open heart listening for his whispers in our life, his wooing in our life, listening to him say, hey, do you know that area of your life right there? It's time to address that. Hey, do you, do you know that, that thing right there that you've been blind to for so, so long? I'd like to show you that. I'd like to, to open your eyes so that you can see this. Hey, do you know that particular sin that you've just grown so accustomed to? Well, that particular sin is like cancer and it's gonna kill you. So, so this is the moment. Let, let's go address that thing. It's that gentle whisper where the Lord comes to us and says, hey, hey, do you know that deep issue in your heart that you've lived with for a long time? It's gonna be really painful to address, but, but if you will listen to me in this moment, and if you'll, if you'll come along and, and, and address this with me in this moment, it will lead to amazing new life in you. God would much rather us operate like that Rather than busting through the front door of our lives, wounding us with his tough love, he would rather woo us. He would rather be able to speak gently and softly into our life and for us to respond to him when he does that. Now, David shows us reactive repentance, and it's painful, isn't it? If you read 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you'll see how painful it is. But here in Psalm 139, David also models for us proactive repentance. And, and you see it in that prayer in the last two verses. Look at it again in verses 23 and 24. 
David says, search me, O God. Is that not a beautiful prayer? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Now, think about what David is praying here. He's saying, oh God, would you, would you search me? Would you search my heart? The, the human heart is like, uh, is like a vast world. I mean, it, it is expansive and massive. And within the, the human heart, there are these beautiful mountaintops and there are these lush valleys. And generally, that's the part of our hearts that we know because that's the part of our heart that we enjoy living in. And, and sort of relishing in. Uh, but in the human heart, there are also deep ravines. And those deep ravines are, are so dark and so deep that, that typically they go unexplored in our life. We just avoid them at all costs. We're just terrified to sort of look over the abyss to, to find what might actually be down at the bottom of that deep ravine. And, and so over time, we become skilled avoider of those dark places. And over time, we, we develop a way of putting up no trespassing signs for other people in those areas. Uh, just to make sure we're reminding God that, God, you are not welcome in those areas and uh, our friends. Hey, hey friends, you are not welcome to poke around and explore in these, these sort of uncharted areas of my heart. We become so skilled at avoiding these things, but not David. David is saying here, Jesus, nothing in my heart is off limits to me. God, would, I'm inviting you, please come and search me. Is there anything that, that you want me to see that I can't see? Is there anything that I have been avoiding in my, in my life, in my heart, that you want me to stop avoiding and start addressing? God, would you, would you show me these things? God, you have unlimited access in my life. At any time, you can show me anything, and God, I want to listen. Oh, God, would you search me and know my heart? Then he says, God, try me and know my thoughts. Uh, to try someone is using the imagery of of uh, testing metal. It's heating up metal so that it melts and you can see the purity of the metal. How much of it is pure gold and how much of it is dross. That's trying metal or testing metal. And David is saying, God, come and try me. Uh, test me. Church, it, it's not what we appear to be that matters most. It's what we actually are that matters most. And part of what David is saying here in this moment, he's saying, God, I don't, I don't care about what I appear to be, what, what I think I am, what other people think I am. God, what I care about is what I actually am, what you know me to be. So God, would you come and try me? God, would you show me what I am and what I'm not? Try me, test me, and know my thoughts. This is proactive repentance. It's not waiting on the Lord to bust through the door with his tough love. It's proactively with an open heart asking Jesus to show you through his wooing and through his whispering what needs to be addressed in there. What parts of your heart that you have been avoiding? What, what, what has to, in this moment, on this day, be addressed? That is proactive repentance. So let me finish here by answering three questions about proactive repentance. Why do we need it? Why do we resist it? And how do we do it? Let me just finish there, and this will be fairly brief. Why do we need it? Why do we resist it? And how do you do it? 
So why do we need proactive repentance? Well, let me just give you two of maybe 20 or 30 reasons that, that we could offer from the scriptures. But here are two reasons why we need it. Uh, one is because sin blinds us. This is sort of an attribute of sin. Uh, one of the attributes of sin is that it resists detection. It's a good thing to know about sin in your own life, that it resists detection. It doesn't want to be seen. Sin often masquerades um, as something noble. It oftentimes wears clothes that just aren't its own. It, it wears noble clothes. So uh, have you ever noticed in your life how a harsh word so often feels like, no, I'm just telling the truth. You ever notice that? Have you ever noticed in your life how bitter resentment and an unwillingness to forgive um, just sort of feels like, no, I just care about justice. That's what I really care about. Um, think about David. David, he didn't feel like a sinner in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Do you know what he felt like? A lover. Uh, when he gave the command for Uriah to be killed, he didn't feel like a murderer in that moment. He felt like a general offering the next command to his army. That, that's what he felt like. And this is what sin does. It's, it's blinding. This explains, why, uh, this explains why we are so much better at detecting wrongs in other people than we are the wrongs in us. Right? Uh, this is why Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 6 says, um, hey, you might want to think about getting the log out of your own eye before you worry about the specks in the eyes of other people. I mean, isn't that a funny analogy? Embedded into that analogy is Jesus teaching us that we have a hard time seeing logs. I mean, a tree is in our eye and we can't see it. And this is how sin works in us. It, it's blinding. It's, it's hard to see. Every time sin has this way of, of, of masquerading and, and resisting detection. And now think about what this prayer that David is offering in Psalm 139 is teaching us. In some ways, when, when David is praying, search me and try me, he is admitting, I can't see sin with near as much clarity as I would want to see it. I'm often blind to these things. So, so God, would you open my eyes and show me the sin that I need to see? And this is why proactive repentance is so important. The poison of sin will go on killing us and we won't even know that it's in us. That's why we need to come before God with an open heart saying, God, would you show me this? God, I need help seeing these things. So sin blinds us. That's one reason that we need proactive repentance. But here's another reason. Sin not only blinds, sin also entrenches. It entrenches itself. The longer sin remains, the more rooted it becomes. So the longer sin exists in your heart, undealt with, avoided, uh, just sort of brushed to the side, that the longer it remains in you, the more deeply rooted it becomes. I've often used the analogy of a tree to, to describe this. And just picture two yards for a moment. Both yards have trees in it. Um, in yard one, the tree is a 75-foot-tall, massive oak tree. I mean, it's just towering. It's got this huge trunk and these massive limbs branching out in every direction. That's yard one. But then in yard two, there's also a tree. But that tree has a six-inch tall little oak tree. I mean, it's tiny. It's just come up out of the ground. It's just got its first leaves sort of flowering. It, it's, it, it's, it's a tree, but it's a tiny tree. Now, imagine someone comes to you and says, your job is to cut down the tree. What tree are you hoping they're talking about? You're hoping it's the six-inch tree, right? 
because that tree is so much easier to uproot and to deal with in our life. Now, that is a metaphor for how sin operates. The longer sin remains, the more deeply rooted it becomes. So here's the decision we all have to make in our life. Here's the decision. We can proactively come to God and let him point out the the little trees of sin in our life. And when spotted as little trees, they're just so much easier to deal with. The wreckage and the ripples of those sins are just so much smaller. Or we can do it the other way, the way of reactive repentance. We can wait. We can wait for God to send a Nathan armed with a chainsaw, right? And ready to start chopping our life down limb by limb in order to save us. That's our decision. Do we want it the proactive way, the little small tree that we get to deal with, or the reactive way, the massive oak tree that has to be cut down and uprooted in our life? This is why we need proactive repentance. Sin blinds and sin entrenches. So why is it that we resist proactive repentance? Why is it that this prayer is so hard for us to pray? And again, gosh, there's... Dozens of reasons we could probably give for that, but let me just offer two. And really, they're distortions, two distortions that keep us away from proactive repentance. One is a distorted view of repentance. Um, Have you ever played a word association game where if I say the word green, you just think of the next thing that comes to your mind and you say it, maybe it's grass or whatever it is for you. Well, let's play that, that word association game with the word repent. What is the next idea or thought or word that comes into your mind? And here's what I've noticed. When people play that word association game with the word repent, what often comes to their mind next is something negative. It's a very negative thought or word or feeling that comes along with that word repent. And undoubtedly, there are difficult things embedded into the idea of repentance. Like, for instance, sorrow over sin. Most of us don't enjoy expressing sorrow over sin, but that's a part of repentance. So there is undoubtedly some um, hard things, difficult things in repentance. But I just want to say this as clearly as I can. The scriptures do not have a negative view of repentance. It doesn't associate a negative word with repentance. What the scriptures associate with repentance is life-giving refreshment. That's what is associated with repentance in the scripture. So take Acts chapter 3, verse 19. In Acts 3, verse 19, we learn this about repentance. It says, repent, therefore. Now, what are we going to associate with repentance? It says, repent, therefore, and turn back that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. See, repentance is turning from sin that's killing us, and it's returning to Jesus, the one who is giving refreshment and life to us. That's repentance in the Bible. It's not a negative thing. It's a beautifully refreshing thing. Uh, Listen to what Ray Ortland says about it. He says, I just love this statement. He says, sin sounds wonderful in theory, but leaves a bitter aftertaste. Now, how about repentance? On the other hand, repentance sounds terrible in theory, but leaves us calm, relaxed, and free. Could you use in your life a little more calm, a little more relaxation, a little more freedom, a little more refreshment? Then the Bible is saying, why don't you walk through the door of repentance then? Because that's where all of those things are found, life giving refreshment. So one reason that we resist uh, proactive repentance is just a distorted view of repentance. Uh, But maybe even more importantly, we resist proactive repentance 
because so many of us live with a distorted view of God. The biggest reason we resist proactive repentance is because we're just unsure about the way God feels about us. We're just unsure about that. What what does God actually think about me? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Uh, The younger son rebelliously demands his share of the inheritance. And I just can't even imagine this moment for his dad. It just had to be such a heartbreaking moment when the father gives him his share and watches his son walk in rebellion, really run in rebellion to the far country. And if you know the story, he quickly spends all of his inheritance and he soon finds himself in a literal pigsty, competing with pigs for food in that pigsty. And it's there in that pigsty that he comes to his senses and he starts the process of repentance. But his repentance had all sort of misconceptions embedded into it about his father. And his father in the story of Luke 15 represents God. And so in the middle of repentance, he has all of these distorted views about God. And you see these distortions in verses 17 through 19 of Luke 15. Here's what we learn. It says, but when he came to himself, this is the prodigal in the far country, in the pigsty, he he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I will perish here with hunger. He goes on to say, I will arise and go to my father. And here's what I'm going to say to my dad whenever I see him. I'm going to say this to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, part of what he is saying here is true. It is true that he is not worthy to be called a son. That is true. But but what he is saying here is also false. He is grossly underestimating the amazing grace of God. Sinclair Ferguson does a great job of just explaining this little moment in this story in Luke 15 in his book on adoption called Children of the Living God. And he says it this way. He says, although the story is probably the best known and loved of all of Christ's parables, the lesson it teaches us is often overlooked. Jesus was underlying the fact, now listen to this, Jesus in in the parable of the prodigal son, he is underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing in the world to dawn upon us. As we fix our, our eyes upon ourselves and our past failures and our present guilt, he goes on to say, it seems impossible to us that the father could actually love us. And then listen to this last phrase. He says, many Christians go through much of their lives with a prodigal suspicion. With a prodigal suspicion. If if God just knew how bad I was, there's no way he could love me. If, If I actually admitted this dark, evil thing in me, what in the world would God do to me? I I would just instantly become one of the hired hands. That's that's what would happen to me. It's it's that prodigal suspicion. And and here is the amazing thing about, just take Psalm 139. You know, the rest of Psalm 139 is written with, with, with the purpose of trying to convince you that God knows you, every little part of you, the beautiful and the bright parts, and the dark and evil parts. He knows all of that, and God still loves you. 
Psalm 139 is written to convince you of that. And isn't this what the the Bible as a whole is written to try to convince us of? Isn't isn't that the message from Genesis to Revelation? Isn't that like the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That, that, That God knows us, not just the best of us, but the worst of us. He knows us and he still loves us. The Bible is announcing to us that God is pleased with those who come to him with the empty hands of faith, not because of what they have done or failed to do, but because of what Jesus has done for them in his life, death, and resurrection. That's that's the great news the Bible is announcing. Your standing with God is not dependent upon what you have or haven't done, but upon what Jesus has done. If you're in Christ, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is trying to convince us that you can bring your worst to God because Jesus has brought his best on your behalf. That's what the Bible's trying to convince you of. It's trying to assure you of that, give you confidence in that. And friends, until we believe that, we'll be suspicious of God. We'll always resist repentance. We'll always resist proactive repentance where we are saying to God, God, search me and know me. Show me the worst of me so I can deal with these things. Try me and test me. We'll always resist that until we're confident of the love of God in our life. And church, I just want to remind you this morning that Jesus treasures those moments where we bring his worst, or where we bring our worst. He treasures those moments. He he loves those moments. Because you know what Jesus gets to do in response to us when we do that? He gets to bring the healing balm of his best to us, to cover our sin. So let me finish here. Well, how do we do it? What would proactive repentance look like in our life? And today at about noon, we're going to post some things on our social media uh, sort of accounts um, with a guide that Kelly has written to kind of walk a person through that. Um, But let me just offer these couple of encouragements as you're thinking about how do you do that. First, it requires us to slow down. Searching is not a quick thing. You can't search in a frantic hurry. So it requires us to to slow down, to find some time where we can allow our hearts to to be settled before the Lord, where we can come to the Lord in an unhurried way. You know, think about the voice of the Lord in your life. Jesus is always whispering to you, but that whisper is seldom loud. And there is so much white noise in our life that constantly drowns out that that whisper of the Lord in our life. So this week, it would look like you slowing down, finding maybe 30 minutes to be settled before the Lord so some searching can happen. So slow down and then read Psalm 139, the the entire chapter, lingering over those last two verses. Maybe reading those last two verses four or five times, praying those, offering those two verses back to God. God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. God, would you please show me if there's any grievous way in me, oh God. So slow down, read Psalm 139, and then listen. Just listen. Just listen to the Lord. 
And do you know what the Lord loves to do when his kids pray this prayer in Psalm 139? He loves to answer them. He'd love to answer you this week. He would love to show you where um, sin, like a cancer, is killing you right now, but, but you're unaware of it. He would love to show you that so new life can grow there. And you know what I love about the Lord? When we come before him and ask him to, to search us and to try us, when we pray that prayer, if your life is anything like mine, there's probably about 10,000 things wrong in me that the Lord could point at. But do you know what the Lord does when you pray that prayer? He's going to show you the two or three things that today he wants you to address. And then when you do it tomorrow, he's going to show you the two or three things tomorrow that he wants you to address. He's not going to show you all 10,000, just the things today that he wants you to prioritize. He wants you to, to see and go to war with. He just loves to respond gently and, and well to us in those moments. So church, let's make a habit of offering this prayer to him, this prayer of proactive repentance. May this become the posture of our heart. May we become open-hearted to God. God, search me and try me, and oh God, would you please lead me beside still waters? Would you please take me through proactive repentance to green pastures and to the way of everlasting refreshment? Amen. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Lord to bring to mind and to press down the things that would be helpful and then to wipe away the things right now that wouldn't be helpful for you. And for some who are in this room this morning or listening in their living room, I want to remind you that repentance starts the Christian life. This is our first step toward God. It's when we come in faith to him, turning from our sin, throwing our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is how we enter into life with God. This is how we experience salvation. This is how, uh, this is how Jesus rescues us. And so if you have not taken that first step toward God, may this be your morning. Right now, in this moment, turning from your sin, coming to God with the empty hands of faith, saying to him, I am trusting Jesus, save me, rescue me. And you know what God would love to do this morning? That just that, rescue you, bring you into relationship with him. So just there where you are in the best way you know how, you can pray that prayer to God. And for the rest of us in the room, what is the distance between you and the last moment of repentance? And what would it look like for us right now, wherever we are, to bring our heart before the Lord and to say, oh God, would you search me and, and show me? God, would you, would you search me and know my heart? God, right now, would you try me? God, would you test my thoughts? Would you, would you show me if there would be something grievous in me right now that I am blind to, that's entrenched in my life, that needs to be dealt with? Oh, God, would you do that? 
So God, would you give us the boldness and the courage to come to you that way this morning? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.